3: the House of Pod. My name is Kaveh Hoda. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I am the host of this humor-adjacent medical podcast called the House of Pod. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us whenever you join us. I appreciate that. Today, two people I am very excited to speak to, and I'm very excited to have them speak to each other and then watch them speak to each other and then sometimes speak to me. First, let's start with returning guest, Tema Fajay.
1: Uh, Tema it's been a long time yeah it's it's been a little while (laughs) how are you buddy Um, you know I'm living life I'm doing okay I'm not in the United States so things are going well
3: it's it's going well because you're not in the United States is what I'm hearing like you're happy to not be here where I am I I got it I'm not gonna argue with that it's hard to argue with that tell me where you are
1: um, I am currently in Malaysia, but I'm going to be in Thailand tomorrow, well, technically later today, here. So. What what time is it over there? Because
3: it's like 8 a.m., ungodly early, uh, even for a doctor, but for for podcasting, this is crazy early. So wh- what time is it over there?
1: It is past midnight, so almost 12.30 a.m. here in wow. Malaysia. Oh
3: my God, so you're I'm such the- a trooper. How is the food? I love Malaysian food. I love it.
1: It's been good. It's been good. I feel like I've gotten a good tour because I've gone country to country. So it's been a lot of good food for the past how <laughs> many weeks? So it's been it's,
3: good. This is just a vacation. This is just for fun. You're not like doing a peacekeeping mission or something like that.
1: Oh, no. This is just like me dissociating from uh-huh. like life. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh,
3: good for you. I've never been more proud of you than this moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's we're going to talk a little bit more about you, but first I want to introduce uh our other guest who I'm very excited to have on. It's his first time here. Josh Trebach. He is an ER doctor and a toxicologist. Josh, welcome to the show, buddy.
2: Hey, thanks, man. Happy to be here.
3: Um, Josh, I want to get to what a toxicologist is. I want to talk to you about that, but first, um there's something that I want to talk to Tema about, and I think you can weigh in on this because you're closer to it than than I am. Tema, there's a big day coming up in your life soon, is there not?
1: Yes. Um, it's, it's not a wedding, mine. as far as I know. <laughs> so, no. Is there,
3: is there, are you getting married? Are we breaking news here? Oh, my here? God, congratulations. Oh, so, how so- no. Oh. I'm
1: getting married to a hospital program, technically. Um.
3: <laughs> tell us. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this Wednesday, so December 14th is the match, well, military match, let me specify. Um, so yeah, the match for anyone who doesn't know is basically the process that people go through to figure out like where they're gonna go for residency. You apply, you get interviews, and then you rank places. Um, because I'm an HPSP, so I had like this scholarship through the Navy, I have to do both the match through them and then also do the civilian regular match that everyone knows about. But for military, we find out sooner. So yeah, that's pretty much what's happening.
3: What is HPSP? I'm sorry.
1: Ooh, it is health profession scholarship program. Oh, wow. Don't Uh, quote me if that is incorrect. No,
3: that makes sense. (laughs) That's close enough. I'll buy that. That's good.
1: Um, But basically it's the scholarship that the army, air force, and Navy have for, Medical students at civilian schools, so basically like regular medical schools. So they help pay for your schooling in return. You serve as a physician with them uh, for however many years you have afterwards. So I initially didn't do it my first year med school. Then I saw how many loans I owed, so I took mm-hmm. second year. Uh-huh. Um, so I, because of that, you can apply to residency and they have their own residency program. So the Navy has four. So, for family medicine.
3: So, soon you're going to find out the place uh, and people you're going to be connected to for at least three to four years. So, it's, it's kind of like a marriage, but probably longer than most American <laughs> yeah. marriages.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> actually really interesting, because I did, like, all my sub eyes this summer, and all of them were at Navy institutions. And because, like, the Navy family medicine community is so small, it's like, these are all people who at least for at least 6 7 years I'll be working with because it's not just residency but and also afterwards right, right, yeah. um, is when my myment starts so yeah i'm just I, excited to know where i'll be moving
3: <laughs> are you you're excited and nervous i'm assuming are you is there some places yeah. that you might end up where you're like i really really hope it's not that place or are all of them pretty acceptable to you at this point you don't have to say which is uh, which
1: all of them i think i would be okay living at i think there are some more than the others like the east coast ones i'd rather be at just due to family proximity um i haven't lived near family since high school basically Mm. so it'd be nice to live near my family um or at least like extended family so yeah it's just a matter of there's where i really really want to go and then everywhere else i'd be happy being so i'm just excited to learn where i can like start looking for apartments and if Uh i will be near my parents
2: It's always the most interesting thing because I I remember when I was waiting for match day and I was just doing this civilian match, which is in the third week of March, I believe. Uh, and I remember being like, OK, so starting at, in late March, I will have to figure out where I'm moving, if I'm moving, uh, mm-hmm. how I'm going to afford xyz and it's like a, a my my recollection from this it's not it hasn't been that long but it's like a binding contract right like you go through the match you basically you you have to go where you match and so <laughs> it's very interesting i don't think a lot for a lot of us we've been in like you know we haven't been in these environments where someone tells us on one the end of one month that we are supposed to uproot everything and move somewhere uh like surprise and yeah. i don't know there's a lot of there's a lot of emotions on match day too i remember uh for me uh, i was our school let us uh you know again this not to get too off topic but it always very interesting to me on like how the match day results are like given i think mm-hmm. if you like watch tv or you see the news reports uh sometimes people will be like on a stage or whatever it's very i don't know i have i have personal thoughts on how i think match days should go i go on
3: I, go on we have no agenda
2: uh, Kaveh, I don't know how it was uh, for you, and uh, Tema, I'm not. I don't know what the it's, the setup is going to be for you as well, since you're you're going to be a part of of both essentially. Um, uh, but for me, when I was in med school and waiting for the match, we had we uh all got together like as a uh, a university or a med school, and then we got envelopes and we were able to sit with our like families and our friends and open it in privacy I guess with them like in a large room Mm -hmm. but I I see and hear stories about my colleagues who have had to go on stage one at a time and like read out in front of everyone and oh I don't know I know I don't know if I would but some people really like that I don't know for me uh I would be it's a little it's a huge thing right like sometimes you get to go where your number one was sometimes you're going to your number like ninth or tenth spot which is acceptable as well i mean like you rank those spots and i feel like they'd just be so stressful like so i was so yeah. thankful in retrospect but i don't i don't know i i i think it's probably just like different uh different the uh, med school cultures that lead to what it currently is but it makes me so stressed by proxy i don't know stressed yeah. by proxy to hear about yeah. people having to go on a stage and like uh say where they're going in front of everyone i was like insulated in a bubble of like my my partner and my like parents and my brothers. So I was like very like cozy. I don't know. I, I totally agree. I think that would be nerve. I did not enjoy the way we
3: did it either. It wasn't quite that dramatic. We like had a big room. Everyone got their package, but then, you know, everyone's walking up to everyone else asking them like, oh, so where'd you end up? What'd you do? Which is like, I think great for most people, but there are some people who are not going to the place they were hoping to go to. And that's a hard day,
2: yeah. you know,
3: cause you're spending the next four years or whatever at a place that you... Or six. Yeah. where In a place that you may not really want to be, you know? And and you may feel a little bit of embarrassment. You may feel a little bit of shame. I mean, there's a lot of emotions to work through there. I, you know, I, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. it's not the no, first that's... time med school's done something weird.
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of why I decided to travel because I was like, I want to be by myself yeah. when I get that like match email and then yesterday I was like actually maybe I do want people around me even if virtually um, but yeah it's I know my med school I think they're planning to change it for this year because there's been so much like backlash kind of about the fact that like we don't want to open up our envelopes on the stage in front of everybody especially yeah. it's like I'm not cool with all of y'all like that like I may not want yeah. you all yeah to know that um, so yeah I don't know the way people do match is very interesting I think the one good thing that came out of like pandemic match days is people got to do it like in their homes by themselves or with like their close friends but other than that i know yeah
2: i hear you
3: well for all our listeners out there going through the match i hope that you end up in a place that you're happy about if it's not your number one choice trust me it's going to pass before you know it, you're going to thrive and do great there and I have complete faith in you and uh, sending you all my my love, because I know what that day is like so um, let's change gears because I do have specific toxicology questions here for Dr Trebach. Um Josh, let, let's start with some of the basics. Just what is toxicology and what's a toxicology fellowship? Like what, uh, what, what does that entail? Do you have to, does that mean you just like, you know, you're, you read an extra book or
2: two about like plants that are poisonous or you have to learn about snakes. Is it like a
3: three-year program? What, what is it?
2: Sure. So uh, dude, I wish it was just reading one extra book. That would mm-hmm. be... <laughs> That'd be so nice. Uh, so uh, medical toxicology is a, is a relatively big field. Uh, I'll start with so the the path to being a a medical toxicologist in the at least uh, here in the United States is after you go through medical school, a uh, medical school training, and then uh, residency training, be it in pediatrics or internal medicine or psychiatry or most commonly emergency medicine. Uh, you apply for a medical toxicology fellowship, which is actually a match process as well, like we were just talking about. Uh, And then that once you match into that, that's a two-year program. So two-year fellowship program. Well, some fellowships are longer, some fellowships are, are shorter, but for medical toxicology, it's two years. And so during those two years, you're essentially studying all the things that a medical toxicologist does and needs to know. And it's a very big, very big field. Uh, in general, if I were to sum up some of the, the the, topics in medical toxicology. So, for example, it's like saying like uh, surgery, like, what do you do? Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. Well, it's a huge field. I mean, you can, right? Great I mean, question. What do they do, those <laughs> bastards? What do they do? Uh, there's So, there's so much you can say. Uh, so, uh, what I'll do is I'll say uh, in the realm of, of medical toxicology, it's studying the... If affects that uh, anything external to the body. Sometimes people use the word, sometimes people say drugs, sometimes people say pharmaceuticals. The correct term technically is something called a xenobiotic, which is anything external to the body that's not produced in the body um, or by the body, really. Uh, something external uh, that can cause toxicity. So any sort of toxicity from a drug or a substance or an animal or a plant or uh uh, something man-made something natural any sort of toxicity any sort of withdrawal from drugs, substances things like that uh public health threats uh or um, disasters and then just providing general information uh to the to the public and to our colleagues I think is a is a good way to sort of sum it up
3: yeah uh, no that's good um I love xenobiotic it sounds very James Cameron I'm I'm, I'm into it um that what what brought you to the field what drew you to it
2: yeah so I I I mean the short answer is that it is just so much fun uh but the the longer answer I would say is in in med school and even in in college I think if I were to think back I I really liked the the pathophysiology of of medicine and just of science and so you know I think I was always asking like, why does a cell do this? We remember this for the test, but why does a cell do this? Why does the disease cause these symptoms? Why does this drug do what it does? It's the pathophysiology. For me, that's been the most interesting part of medicine. And toxicology at its core is, is, is understanding that pathophysiology and then applying it. Uh, and that can be with respect to all those topics I was just saying, plants, mushrooms, uh, animals, drugs from a doctor, drugs from a friend, drugs from uh, made in a lab, it can be sort of anything. And it's, it's really interesting, because in the world of toxicology, we don't have as much robust data that some of these other uh, fields in medicine do. So for example, if someone gets uh, pneumonia, I can tell you, you know, what's the typical course of that pneumonia is. And we have data to say which types of pneumonias are, are worse, and which infections are worse, et cetera. But in the world of toxicology, we don't really have a lot of that because it's hard to study. You can't really uh, take a group of people and, and poison them and see what happens. as a rather yeah. uh, and <laughs> that, that is frowned upon, and I do not condone that. Uh, so we don't have a lot of information. So you're relying a lot on that pathophysiology. So if I have a patient or I receive a consult or a call at the poison center from someone who was exposed to a drug that was made in a lab that we know nothing about, I have to rely on that pathophysiology and my understanding of the drug and even uh, being a bit of a nerd and looking at the structure of the, the compound or whatever to try and see what those effects would be. So it's very fun. So uh, you, you, you like the fact that's not quite so linear. It's not like, oh, you have a
3: disease. That means you uh, have to get B treatment for C length of days.
2: You kind yeah. of like that you are figuring things out as you go along. Is that, I, am I reading that correctly? Yeah. You you are, you are simultaneously navigating that space between uh mystery and application to help your poisoned patient. It's very exciting for me. And, um, uh, it's very fulfilling, and then you know, uh, there's other fantastic reasons that I, I love toxicology. You know, there's a this huge public health mission. You know, we have poison centers that serve a lot of this, the the this, the the states uh, here in the, the USA and provide information not just to the to the public, but you know to the hospitals as well. Anyone can call a poison center uh, and talk to them. Do a lot of fighting misinformation, uh, addressing the sort of conspiracy theories. I think fentanyl has been something that's been in the news a lot, a lot lately. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, so it's, it's, it, uh, and I think it just, at the end of the day, helps me be a better physician for, for my patients and the world could always use more toxicologists. So that's my spiel.
3: Oh, it's a good plug.
2: It's a good plug.
1: (laughs) Um, I was going to ask, you kind of brought it up. So this is just my ignorance and just being like the med student that's been told to call like poison control on a patient Mm -hmm. So when we call poison control, we're not talking to a toxicologist. But do they contact you all and then kind of figure things out and then kind of relay the information back to us?
2: Yeah. So that's that's a, a fantastic question. And TBH, I was not even sure how this fully worked until uh, I I was a tox fellow. So <laughs> uh, in general, the in the USA, there's a bunch of poison centers. I uh, not every state has one. Some are uh, some states are covered by nearby poison centers in other states. Uh, but in general, a lot of there, there's going to be a poison center that that is covering a state. At the poison center, the the phone lines themselves are run by um, we what we call our it's called, sounds cool. It's called spies, not like Russian <laughs> spies, but like uh, specialists in poison information. Uh, so uh, those. Uh, individuals will answer the phone, and they will take the calls, and they're they're trained to, you know, answer those calls. And they're usually a they can be a nurse, they can be a pharmacist, uh, and they, they they answer tons of these calls. And I worked alongside of of these individuals when I was a fellow. And, you know, they were like in the room right next to me, taught me so much. I'm so thankful. Uh, but so they, those uh, specialists in poison information will answer the call. They take a lot of those calls from the hospital. They can be from home. When I was a kid, uh, my brother swallowed a battery and my mom called mm-hmm. poison center. We don't, oh, the GI crossover, GI crossover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> you got, You have
3: my interest. I'm listening.
2: Crossover episode. Yeah. <laughs> But I remember my mom, my mom told me she called poison control and, uh, you know, so it's all sorts of stuff that you can call Mm -hmm. and the poison control specialists always will have a medical director uh, as their backup and that's going to be a medical toxicologist, uh, which is technically what I am now. So I in my current position that I am now, I do work closely with uh, uh multiple poison centers. And so I am sometimes that person that gets called by the uh the spies with questions or or tricky cases. And then on top of all of that, certain hospital systems have direct toxicology consults. So you can actually say, you know what, I actually I want to call the the medical toxicologist directly who's affiliated with our hospital and have them come in and and see the patient. So I sort of can get, there's two avenues to get to a medical toxicologist, either through the poison center, uh, uh, if that's where they also work, Mm -hmm. and then through like direct sort of consultation, if that's something your your hospital system sets up. So it's a little bit complicated to understand. Like I said, like, this is not what they, you don't learn this in med school. You learn- oxidative phosphorylation and um and then yeah sorry name drop uh i'm
3: impressed no listen you you had us at oxidative phosphorylation that's pretty hot it's gonna be the Um, name of my first child uh, (laughs)
0: um
3: op op you call him op uh that's a good name so, um, when you're on call in the hospital, if you're one of the if you have like a system where your ER has an on call toxicologist, I'm assuming that's home call, which means they'll call you. You can stay at home, and they'll call you, and you answer things. You probably don't usually have to go in for those things, right?
2: Yeah, there's there are some cases that I I I, I do go in for, and if I think that the patient can benefit by having me at the bedside, then then absolutely. So it really it really depends. I mean. I, uh, in fellowship and even uh, where I currently work, I chose to live relatively nearby the hospital because I, I anticipate coming in. I, I also understand what it's like to be on the the emergency doctor side of things hmm. that I like when if I'm consulting someone and I want them to come in, uh, I, I like knowing that it's an option, right? Uh, and so I kind of have a little bit of perspective as someone who consults from the ED and then now as someone who consults to the ed so yeah a lot of the times though if the case is relatively straightforward i mean like you know we run a, a talk service we see the patients but it, it just it it ultimately depends there are some nights where i am in the hospital and then just i sleep in the call rooms because it's been very busy uh, mm-hmm. and other times where i i you know I'm, I'm doing home call and it's uh relatively okay but now that i just said that my next call for the next like six months <laughs> <is gonna> <laughs> uh uh, (laughs) thanks to you so yeah sorry about that man um
3: but it builds character um so let me let me ask you i know this is going to be hard to answer because there's probably such a variety but what what are the things what's your bread and butter what's like the stuff you get called on the most i'm assuming ingestions yeah so
2: uh i the most common things would be Concern for a drug overdose or drug toxicity, and so the reason I I specify those two as being a little bit different is so, uh, overdose, and I I notice how I I didn't say, uh, intentional or unintentional. I just kind of put them in the same category. An intentional overdose, uh, and sometimes you can have an intentional overdose without the intent to self harm. So it gets very a little bit complicated. So I'm using I'm trying to use the correct word. So uh, you can have. Uh, any sort of, of of overdose, intentional or unintentional, and so that can be someone taking a bunch of medications with the goal of self harm. It can be someone who's taking a bunch of medications because they misunderstood how to take their medications, or there is, there is confusion about how to take the medications. It can be unintentional, as in a, a child gets into something that they shouldn't, uh, or something is you, you know uh, especially like those pill counter or the, uh, sure. Right. Boxes. The weekly you pill boxes, boxes. take the two days, you know, things like that, uh, any sort of concern for, for drug toxicity. So again, this can be a, this can be in the context of, um, well, I'll use a, I'll use a great example. So for some patients who are on uh, digoxin, say a heart medication, uh, certain antibiotics can actually cause your digoxin levels to go up uh, simply just taking them because there are some bacteria that exist in our GI tract that normally chew up digoxin. Uh, But then when you take these antibiotics, you kill them off and then you aren't chewing up that digoxin anymore. So you actually get more absorbed uh, and it can lead to digoxin toxicity. And so again, that's not an overdose, right? That's just people like taking a medication for a UTI or a diverticulitis or something. So concern for drug toxicity, uh, Concern for withdrawal, like alcohol withdrawal uh, or benzodiazepine withdrawal, things like that. <laughs> and then I think we have a lot of this. This sort of vague. This patient is this tox is a is a question we sometimes get asked. Yes, as and someone is not acting as people think they should, and want to know if there is a substance on board. And we actually in toxicology have a secret magic wand that we can wave and it just tells us what it is so we, yeah. don't, we don't we don't share that with people uh and uh we might need to edit edit that out because i don't i don't want people knowing you that know you can know that no i got you i got <laughs> you on that wand that we have but uh, no, so sometimes it's just to give a second, uh, a second set of eyes and, you know, say, hey, is there anything you want to add? Do you think this could be tox related? Is there, does this look like a toxidrome that you're, you're, you're experienced with it? And a lot of the, you know, sometimes I'm like, absolutely, this is great. And other times I'm like, I'm not sure either. So uh, it's, it's fun.
3: They're looking for reassurance. I'm I'm assuming a lot. That's probably a lot of what you do.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, I think it, 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 does depend. And I think I sometimes uh, have to remind myself that during fellowship, I did two years of, uh, of rigorous toxicologic training. And so I think sometimes I, I have learned that uh, the things that I take for granted, sometimes I'm like, Oh wait, I actually, I have more to offer than I thought. Right. Like, you know, if someone's like, Hey, does this patient have uh, serotonin syndrome or do you think, and I'm, you know, uh, I look at them and I'm f- being able to be like, actually, no, none of this really fits can be like, Oh, that was very helpful. Thank you. And I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm glad I could help. You know? So uh, I think I just, I think I, I, I need to acknowledge sometimes uh, what I what I've learned and have a little bit more confidence that I can bring something. Uh, yeah. When I feel like I'm not, but no, it's, it's been good. And I, I love uh, working with my, my colleagues. I love the, Collegial and camaraderie approach to to medicine, so it's uh, it's very fun and it's a nice change of pace from being a the emergency doc to being a a consultant. Uh, so. Yeah,
3: Tema Tema, this is the thing because you're you're going to be practicing in a field where you're going to have to call consultants for things, and really? these are consultants who have spent dedicated years to this particular topic, <laughs> and you're going to have to deal with people like Josh and I. Uh, being like, oh, you didn't know about the oxidative phosphorylation I will that not way. will B three. You know, you'll you'll have to deal with a lot of that. I mean, um, I don't know what advice to give you on that, other than just to, you know, wish them the best and turn the other cheek because it's just not worth the hate. But you're gonna yeah. that, that's a big part of like consultants is we have to always remember, yeah, there's a reason they're calling us for this, you know, we don't. Mm-hmm we specifically went into training for this question mm-hmm. but that being said i've I, this is an outsider's perspective on the er josh you and i'm sure there's going to be like er doctors listening to the screaming at their phone yeah. um listening to this uh, wherever they listen to this but i feel like there are certain things er doctors are more likely to call out consultants for like if there's some cardiac issue, if there's some GI issue, they call us a lot um, for those things and, and as they should. I feel like do, is there some more ownership for ER doctors about toxicology things? Are they a little bit less willing to call out for that? Like they feel like, Oh, this is my lane. I should know this. Is that something you experience?
2: It's super depends on the, where you're training and where you're practicing or where you trained and where you're practicing. So for example, when I was in residency, we didn't have a toxicology consult that didn't exist. We just didn't have that, but we could always call poison control. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember for, I treated a lot of patients with alcohol withdrawal when I was a, a resident, an emergency resident. And I just thought that was just what you do as an ER doc. And and it, and it it is. And then when I started fellowship, uh, you know, I, I moved to a different state. And when I started fellowship, one of the first consults I got on talks was for alcohol withdrawal. And I remember talking to the my attending, and I was like, "Oh my, OMG, get this!" I was like, "Someone called us for alcohol withdrawal," and they were like, yeah. "They were like, okay." And I was like, "Oh, that wasn't the response I expected." And I, like, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I mean, yeah, that's like a normal thing we get, right?" And they were like, "Absolutely." And I was like, "Yeah, totally." So, it, it like I didn't I didn't know, and so it's very it totally depends. Like I didn't know until I started fellowship that people called about alcohol withdrawal. I thought that was just an emergency medicine thing, and then now as I'm. I'm getting elsewhere, I realized that I actually, toxicologists have so much to add in the, the management in, in helping with alcohol withdrawal. And I was like, oh, man, I look back to residency. And I wonder if, you know, that by having if we had a toxicology consult or something, like if that could have helped more of our patients, we just, we just didn't know what we we didn't have. And so it really depends. So I have had people call me to ask questions that I feel like, are super, super advanced. And I'm like, Oh, are, did you do a tax fellowship? Because you know this in and out. And then I've had people call and ask questions that are like, Hey, like, how do I give naloxone again? And then I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, like, I know that I know med students who are getting trained on this and probably know this as well. So it's huge variation. And again, um, my personal approach as a consultant is I, I'm. this might just be a little bit of my personality, but I really don't, I don't I don't ever yell and I don't try to make anyone feel dumb or silly because my approach is that if you're calling someone for help uh, or to ask a question, you're doing it for the the patient, right? Like, and I don't think there's ever a reason to be mean. And there's definitely been times at like 2 a.m. where I've been yelled at by a physician over the line for consulting them when I was in residency and that feels horrible. Uh, I never want to make anyone feel that way. You know, I think it's an interesting conversation, I, and I, I the
3: the consultant and the the person asking the consultant questions, because there's a lot of things that go into this. It's late at night, oftentimes a person sleeping, they're woken up. I, I will say personally, I I like what your your framework for this, and I think it's a really good one, which is like they're doing this for the patient's benefit. So it's hard to to be angry about that. I'll be honest with you, the only times. I don't love a phone call is when the ER doctor either knows already what they're going to do and what's right, but they just want to have it signed off that they talk to GI. And and sometimes that's okay. And sometimes I'm just like, you, you didn't need to, you knew it. You just want to have something in the chart that protects you and it, you didn't need that. It's unnecessary. It's a medical legal sort of framework that I don't think is a great practice. Yeah. Um, or when they're calling for a chart biopsy, which means that like they're like, hey, it's it's like two a.m. in the morning. This this person's having this issue. And then you look and they're basically asking you to help dissect the chart and look and see when their last endoscopy or colonoscopy was. Those are the things that I'm like, mm, I don't love that. Don't love that. I feel like you could have done that. So I I think that is a great framework
2: that you have. And um, I think if you have that and you keep that, it's gonna serve you really well. I think what what has what breaks my heart the most is being a consultant. I don't, again, I don't, this is, I've only been a cons- consultant for like, you know, two or three years now, is that everyone always apologizes when they call you. They're like, hey, you know, uh, sorry. Uh, thanks for getting back to me. I'm like, why are you apologizing? I'm literally getting paid to be on, <laughs> like, my job. Like, I wasn't like, you know, yeah. like, it, and so, but like, it, it is very interesting how everyone, like, a apologizes and it's not just here even when i was a fellow people were like hey sorry like uh and i'm like what like that like i, I don't and no I think listen so that don't that's getting like grilled by the person who's on the other line and i'm like who are you like you're not you're me. not gonna that's not gonna be the case forever that's not going to be the case forever. Like I got a call, like some of the
3: ER people get hardened. So they stop like being apologetic. Like I got a call like at 3 a.m. the other night and they're like, hey, I just want to give you a heads up on this patient. Here's the MRN number. Here's the medical record. You can put this into the computer. I'm like, it's 3 a.m. You think I'm sitting in front of a computer? I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, what? I'm like that's not that's not how it works. And yeah. so like there 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 can be a hardening of the ER doctors where they're like purposely will just be like, yeah. no, I'm gonna just call this and it's my right. And I, I get it, it's survival at that point. They have to do that, but
2: right. you enjoy those, enjoy those pleasant exchanges. I almost think ever I mean, why can't people just be nice to each other? I mean, like I, I called someone recently on my one of my shifts, a consultant, and I said, I was like, hey dude. I do not know what this is, and I was like, "Can you help me out?" And they—they're very nice, and they said, "Hey, for future reference, like, uh, if I see this again, like, you know, would you mind telling me, like, how would I take care of this in the future?" Blah blah. blah. I mean, like, have a good good conversation. I understand yeah. that's easy, uh, and sometimes <clears throat> if you're bouncing between like nine consults, but like, I usually uh, th- there's been times where like a hospital or something has kept me up the entire night. But like that's that's the gig, right? I mean, like I didn't I didn't yeah. come into toxicology to never be called or only be called between the <laughs> hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Right. Like I mean, like yeah. at the end of the day, if my family member was in the hospital <clears throat> and someone was calling a consultant with a question about them, I would I would want there to be some collegiality. And so again, like maybe I'm being a little bit too uh too much of a softy, but I really just don't think there's there's any room for sort of shitty behaviors by yeah, either the consulting yeah. or the consultants just because we all know that it's like it's hard to approach people when they're uh assholes.
1: ready to pop the question
2: and uh and that could just lead to more uh more more barriers i don't know the one thing i'll say and then i'll shut up so i remember in uh med school there was this attending in the operating room that was like notorious like threw shit yelled at everyone whatever and one time when i was again i was a med student this attending in this in this in the or broke sterile fields very clearly, their hand, their arm, like touched something it shouldn't have. And no one, no one in the mm-hmm. room said anything. And I was like, "Yo, like, I was like, I, I remember thinking like, wait, I gasped myself, and I was like, did he, did he break sterile like, meal? Right, right. Maybe, right. maybe didn't. And then I was like, nope. Like, you know, there was multiple residents. There was, I think, a chief there. There was like the scrub tech. Everyone, mm-hmm. every no one said a word because they were like, yeah. oh, afraid of the rather- guy. They were yeah. like, we would rather let this person break sterile field, put the patient theoretically at higher risk, and not get yelled at by this person. So I know that the, these people being assholes puts up barriers. And I I, I don't know if we appreciate that as much because people will also often like to... Uh, uh, defend and say oh they're like really mean but they're really good they're really good doctor and I'm like yeah but like like what if you you can were also nice, be nice
1: and a good
2: doctor yeah I mean like they you get the best of both worlds like hashtag Hannah Montana like what are you
1: <laughs> like I don't
2: I don't know so anyways that's my that's my spiel anyways I did I did talk to my resident afterwards and I was like but well, did that did was I did I did everyone notice what happened like was I wrong like because I was I think it was like early on in the or I didn't really understand anything And afterwards, they were like, oh, no, definitely that happened. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, like, oh, wait. Uh So we just didn't say anything. They're like, oh, my God, he yells so much. And I was like, oh, okay.
1: It was disheartening. I I apologize.
2: I'm talking a lot. (laughs) It's
1: it's so interesting hearing y'all talk about it from, like, the med student side. Because I wish more consultants knew that if a med student is calling you, we did not want to. Oh, yeah. We're being forced.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Because there's been so many times where they're like, "Do you want to call the consultant?" And I'm like, "Ah, uh, no!" And like you're calling them, and I'm like, <laughs> and then afterwards I'm shaking, and I'm like, "Hi, hi, hi." It's like, I, a
2: I, advanced, like level skill to call a consultant, and because you have to be able to synthesize all of the information you got succinctly, and then present <laughs> it to like in a package framed in a way that's relevant to the like these are like advanced level skills to be able to do that. Like it's hard. Yeah.
1: On um, one of my sub eyes I had to present um, an ICU patient, which is already not great, <laughs> who was going through multi-system organ dysfunction. And I was like, sir, I'm gonna apologize up front because I know this is gonna be a mess. And he's like, it's okay. Let's <laughs> let's go through this together. But that was that was a chef's because yeah. he knew he knew what we were both going to be struggling but a lot of times it's very much like what do you want get to it and I'm like I'm like I'm a child please <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: gosh I don't know there's you you're going to be fine and you'll learn those those skills as you get you get further and you'll learn to <laughs> I guess identify people who who you the the consultants and the teams that you know are. not are more approachable and whatnot <laughs> I got <laughs> I remember when I was a fellow I got called by a an intern in one of the hospitals asking me a talks question whatever and there was this long pause and he goes hey can I you're an attending right and I was like
0: yes and he's
2: or, or he's like you're a... he's like, you graduated residency right and I was like yes and he's like can I just like ask you some questions about like my other patients that are like kind of medicine related and I was like um no no that's I mean, I was like, don't you have someone you can call for that? And he was like, Yeah, but they're like really mean. And I was like, Okay, well, I mean, like, I, I can help you out, dude, but like I don't think I could be your entire team consultant. <laughs>
3: dude, Josh, this is the thing though, okay, because I am your ghost of Christmas future. When yeah. you're known as the attending that people can come talk to, <laughs> you know, and that you're not gonna give them a hard time, especially I'm especially benign to medical students and, and residents because i feel for them but the 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 problem then is then you're known for that and you're going to get consults when you're not on call <laughs> and you'll yeah, be why yeah. why are you calling me right now yeah. the like, the x and such and such is on call and i just don't i don't want to deal with that yeah. and and i'll be like i get it i get it because sometimes it's like you just want to be able to talk to someone without feeling like an idiot Yeah. And like, uh, and, and doctors are great at making people feel like idiots. It's like part of our fucking training is to learn how to make people feel like stupid, both patients and other doctors. It's a horrible part of our like culture and, and I don't know what to do about that, but I think it's a fascinating topic. And and it's something that is, is deeply ingrained in medical training.
1: Ooh, something I noticed on my sub eyes, um, I don't know if y'all have your like medical toxicologist conferences, but do you notice that certain areas of the country deal more stuff than the other? And I asked that because when I was in California, I saw a rattlesnake bite for the first time. And I was freaking out as one does because rattlesnake, all the family docs and ER docs over there were like, this is very normal. They're like, we always get rattlesnake bites, especially I guess on like military installations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's there's definitely a regional variability in, in sort of what you get, Uh, you know, compa- you know, I've I've definitely moved around a, a little bit over the past few years. And the things that I were so, was so used to seeing in residency, just in my training from a talk standpoint are not what I see currently and and vice versa. And then talking to my friends in like Arizona, they're like, yeah, you just, you know, make sure you tap your shoes out for scorpions. And I'm like, what? Like <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it is it's different, interesting, and so it can either be uh, environmental differences. So, for example, you're going to have more snakes and scorpions in some areas. There's certain mushrooms that we worry about, like in the Pacific Northwest, that we wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. worry about in other areas of of the country. Uh, different sort of uh, exposure you get to certain certain plants, just the geographic variation, and then there's also variation in in substances that 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 people use recreationally and so some places are uh very big uh, areas that have more like methamphetamines other places are areas that tend to have more like heroin or fentanyl other places are more you know sometimes people will put it uh, uh like party drugs uh it just it just totally depends i mean like i don't think i have heard some the uh, docs who have called me and say, well, this is strange. We don't normally get this out here. And I'm like, well, you do now. Like, <laughs> like it, it's, it found its way out there. Like, so uh, I think it really, it really, uh, really depends. And there's, I think just with the, not to get on my soapbox, but I think just with the, the internet and a lot of our social social media applications and sort of social uh or our, our app purchasing that we can do a lot of things can find their ways to places they weren't wouldn't be previously and so like I know like when I was in uh a major city you could literally grub hub uh uh, uh whippets like whippet canisters whipped cream canisters which people can mm-hmm. can use recreationally you could just like order those and be like yes I am having a a we are making lots of whipped cream here at 2 a.m <laughs> lots of it like, please deliver now. And so, like, again, it was like it, it just it just depends. But yes, there is definitely that that variation. And it's one thing you have to keep in mind when you're doing like a talks fellowship. Like, where do you want to try? Like if you really, really, really love snakes and scorpions and stuff like that, you're you're probably gonna wanna go uh someplace like the southwest.
3: All right. With our limited time, I think we should shift over to listener questions. We've got quite a few of them. We've covered some of the topics already. A lot of these are multi-part questions, so I'm just going to leave out some of the parts because I'm just going to cover a few of these. Let's start with Heather Elinorain at Med-Mastodon. One, there are obvious toxins, then not so well-known, over-the-counter drugs that can, cause e- that can easily be taken in toxic amounts. I think we're all thinking of Tylenol when we hear that, acetaminophen. What are the lesser-known substances that people don't think of as being dangerous? that's part one of that question what would you say for that
2: very frequently I'm I'm treating patients for acetaminophen toxicity that had no clue it's like over the counter right mm-hmm. uh my personal belief is that if acetaminophen were to go through the drug approval process nowadays would not make it through uh just because it is, hmm. it is uh it's it, it the toxicity can be really frustrating because you're relatively asymptomatic during the time that you would want to treat someone and so unless you're thinking about it it can be can be easily missed uh so to answer toxicities sometimes people come in and the test is negative
3: so it's it's one of those things that you have to have a low threshold to treat with you know uh so it 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 is a tricky one i agree i agree
2: and it's in in everything too i think a while back i did a a twitter thread just like trying to list all the otc things or comments uh preparations that ty- or acetaminophen or Tylenol can be in just because it's so much. So if you tell someone, take your Tylenol, take your Percocet, take your, you know, cold and cough medicine, you're getting a lot of Tylenol exposure. It's in a lot of things. So aside from acetaminophen though, I'd say some of the concerning things that I've seen that are over the counter that I've seen patients get very, very sick or die from, uh, diphenhydramine is 100% up there, Benadryl, uh, mm-hmm. simply because- It has some cardiac toxicity manifestations that can be quite dangerous uh, Mm -hmm. and can can cause patients to get very, very sick. And again, you know, if you go on TikTok or wherever people love to talk about their Benadryl challenge or things that they're doing and if you, you know, (laughs) which again like the toxicologists are like pulling their their hair out uh, with how frustrating that can be. So benadryl is definitely up there. You now we mentioned acetaminophen, uh, aspirin. Again, when I was a kid it was like just you have a headache, take an aspirin or you know it's a very people think of it as like a relatively benign pain medicine and oh your daily aspirin is good. Uh, aspirin toxicity is very dangerous and very unpleasant. And can these patients can get very sick very quickly uh, simply by the, the the symptoms that it can cause uh, from a uh, metabolic acidosis standpoint and then it uh, can be very, very dangerous. So aspirin again is something that worries me. Uh, caffeine, I mean uh, you know, I, how I, dare I, you? I know I'm sorry we we can we can uh, we'll take that out. I'm totally <laughs> editing that part out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, caffeine uh, certainly and this isn't just like drinking your cups of coffee side note when I was studying for tests in college I think I became gently caffeine toxic because I think I remember one day I had nine cups of no I had 10 I had 10 cups of coffee and a croissant (laughs) <laughs> what? what listen man after the third cup you gotta stop you're i know i'm getting anywhere that croissant What's was it? good but like it was just it was just like yeah the croissant was really good i think it's because like i was having like some like hemorrhagic gastritis or something at that point <laughs> it like, was like just like soaking it up with a croissant but uh so i do love not- coffee i love coffee i'm a coffee guy but
3: there I mean, I don't know the details of, there's some health benefits of coffee. We've actually done an episode about that, but it's not a completely benign substance. It can have issues. I don't know if there's actual evidence behind this. I'm curious, but I feel like I've seen in college when people were, because I was in college to study, people were taking caffeine pills. Uh, That was like, I don't, that was like something they would come around campus with. People would have samples of caffeine pills and i knew uh, one uh, one of my my sweet mates went into like a brief mania because he was popping too many of them like i don't know maybe that was just an underlying thing maybe it was the stress of what we were going through with with finals it was really you know competitive and, and scary at that time maybe that was it but I definitely felt like it could unlock something pretty bad. Um, I wonder if that I wonder if that is if that's proven like a caffeine induced mania or something.
2: Well, I feel like that caffeine can d- certainly cause some some euphoria, right I mean like just that uh, that sort of feeling. And so caffeine, is, the reason I bring caffeine up is because it's not just coffee but those like pills like a no dose uh, <clears throat> yeah. like, one right. yeah and like there's a lot of different caffeine pills. People generally take them by mouth. Sometimes people find other ways to take do them. Do people boof coffee? Oh, they do. I know that. I know it's coffee enemas. Mean, you know, what you, boofing is this is this is why we're this is why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, boofing is the act of uh, placing drugs into the the anus into the rectum for. Uh, it's kind of like the way you would snort a drug. Sometimes when people are uh, Snorting a drug, their nose gets too irritated, or something like that. Uh, and they don't want to inject. You can just, you can just sort of shove it up your butt to get uh, absorbed. uh In that I way, I just it's,
1: never knew there was a specific term for it.
2: Yes, it's called boofing. Wow. So people would like Look blow. It. You know, if you're, your your buddies, like, can you blow? The, can you? Would you mind blowing this cocaine up my butthole? You'd be like, yes, of course. I'm. Gonna
3: That's what friends do. Buddy.
2: I only know about it because of Brett Kavanaugh
3: and his boofing of alcohol during like his college years.
1: That's yeah protein yeah protein. you
3: guys call you guys call it butt <laughs> chugging you call it butt chugging. but back yeah. in the day they called it boofing
2: i guess uh so yeah <laughs> <they're-> <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> oh my gosh uh so you know the when, when it comes to caffeine i think it can be can be one of those things that people don't realize again kind of like acetaminophen it's going to be in your energy drink it's going to be in your 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 coffee Your your pills, whatever. And people will take them either for, you know, losing weight or for wanting to study or do all these things. And it can be a little bit, it can be a bit dangerous. I mean, essentially, it, it you know, causes your 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 heart rate to speed up. What's very interesting about this this class of 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 medications, so caffeine is something called a, a methylxanthane, that these are, these drugs act as uh, adenosine antagonists. And so, which is very interesting, we don't have a lot of a lot of things that do that and so people can go into sort of like these heart rhythms that are really really fast and uh like svt and some of our drugs that we use to manage that like adenosine won't work because caffeine and other methylxanthines are adenosine antagonists so it's very interesting but uh so that one's not a it's not a great one don't love those caffeine toxicity or caffeine overdoses mm-hmm. uh and then uh, uh dextromethorphan uh, dxm very uh not not my favorite thing for for patients to get toxic with uh and then any sort of supplements or um, things you can find that are unregulated my one to two cents in spiel on on supplements I'll say is that in the world of supplements that you can get in like your Duane Reed or your CVS or Walgreens or whatever there is not a lot of slash very little regulation that goes into what is in these products. And I have had patients have undesired compounds or things in their supplements before that have caused harm, or we are concerned that caused harm simply because these aren't regulated the same way that like your antibiotics and Mm -hmm. other pharmaceuticals are. Uh, So uh those are that's the
3: a, that's a good list that's a good list it's not the boards josh yeah, yeah. you
2: didn't have to give me everything geez you're,
3: well, you're too I, good at this you're too good at this okay I, get yeah, to these sorry, other keep questions going. I apologize. we, have, I we apologize. have more listener questions to get to people have so much they want to learn from you all oh, right let's go through a couple more i actually have one for Tama too um here in the listener questions yeah i know prepare yourself okay so karen percy at uh karen percy one uh, has a, a a couple of questions. We covered some of them. Let me go to part three of her question. What is the first thing you should do if someone is altered from what you think is a poison or a drug? Is for, no, this is for you, Josh. Yeah, oh.
2: yeah. Uh, the first thing you should do. Well, I guess the question depends on where you're located. Uh, like, if this is in a hot, like, is this a a lay person is this a hospital I'll see say you this, layperson. this is a lay
3: person this is a lay person at at home they walk across their uh, their friend who hasn't been answering the phone and they knock on their door and they, they bang and they see their uh, friend lying on the couch sort of incapacitated and a bottle of something that they don't really know what it is lying Perfect. next to them
2: I will say the things you shouldn't do first are yes. going to be don't shove your hands down their throat to make them throw up don't pour milk down their throat as some attempt to, sometimes people think that can, uh, there's a lot of things about milk that don't make a chance to me. Uh, The, there's, there's really no, there's no super secret tox thing I'm going to tell you. This is just going to be your standard. Like you check for a pulse, you call 911, you initiate CPR if that's something that you feel comfortable doing or, uh, and honestly, if they don't have a pulse and you don't feel comfortable doing it, uh, it, it might be worth when you talk to nine I, when you talk to like 911 for example they'll walk you through it but uh there's not there's no secret special things i think sometimes people think like oh if this person overdosed on something and oh what was it i just watched some tv show where they they like just held the person over the toilet and forced to emesis them by like sticking their hands down their throat and i was like yeah yeah you know, like if you try and make someone who's not protecting their airway, like force throw up, they'll just aspirate it. And you'll, if anything, probably contribute to their demise faster. So we don't, Mm -hmm. we don't really uh, like that. No, there's no, there's no super secret toxins here. This is just sort of your standard approach to an unresponsive person is you call, you, you're checking for a pulse, you call 911. uh, And then you're sort of going through the motions of do they need CPR, et cetera. In the hospital setting, again, uh, if this is you walk into a room for a patient that you're in the ED and you're going to go see them or something, and they're unresponsive and you're suspicious for something, toxic, then you're going to be defaulting to your, your do they have a pulse, yes or no, and then your ABCs, your airway breathing circulation, right? Again, there is no super secret yeah. tox
3: But I think that's a really good point that you bring from a GI perspective as well. You know, if someone has swallowed something caustic and you're worried it might be affecting their like esophagus or their stomach, you do not want to make them vomit it up because then you're exposing them to it again. And there's the risk of of aspiration. I will say this, though, about milk. There was a pediatric gastroenterology journal that um, showed that when someone did swallow a battery, a kid swallows a battery, as you had mentioned, that's really dangerous because the the what can happen is the the lining of the mucosa can start to burn through and it can perforate because of that battery. It can basically be uh, activated. So you do want to get those out soon. There was this one study that came out not long ago showing that people giving them milk and honey actually helped slow that down. So it's still definitely worth calling poison center for. Um But that is, but but yeah, you're right. I've heard of people trying to to pour like things like milk down people's throats when they're not uh, really uh, when they're upended, they're not really clear. That can be really dangerous. So don't recommend that. Um, Okay, great answer again. Okay, let's let's go to Drov Bhagavan. Sorry, buddy. uh, At Drov Bhagavan, and he has a multi-part one, one for you and then one for Tema. Let's start with the one for Tema. How does FM, family medicine versus FMOB work with respect to training and practice? And why did you choose this path?
1: Yeah, um, so family medicine in the US at least, um, three year specialty like for residency, some programs do four, but mostly it's three years and you get like that full spectrum like primary care. So when people think of like the town doctor that used to exist, that's family medicine. Um, FMOB, which not as many people seem to know about, is basically just getting more of that like OB training. So a lot of FMOBs are actually able to do C-sections, basically like uncomplicated, relatively uncomplicated C-sections or are able to do like first assist for a lot of them. Um, so a lot of people who go down that FMOB route, it's because they do like the obstetrics, it's just they did not want to do ob guy. Um So mm-hmm. like for me, I really love obstetrics. I really love like deliveries. I love C-sections. I just didn't care for gyne surgery at all, to be honest. So Mm -hmm. FMOB kind of gave me the best of both worlds where I'll be able to do all the primary care. And then if I have a patient, I'll be able to deliver them if I want to. If they have a C-section, they need a C-section and it's relatively uncomplicated, I could probably like do the C-section myself or be first assist for it um, and just get that like full care, take care of them, take care of baby, take care of like whole family. Yeah. Um, so for FMOB, some programs are designated that they don't have, you don't have to do a fellowship afterwards because you get so much OB training during it. But for the most part, if you don't go to a program like that, you just do like a one-year fellowship afterwards and then you are an FMOB.
3: Oh yeah. That's a good plug. I like it. I mean, best of both worlds. It's like the, when people ask me why I do GI, I mean, that's one of the reasons you want to be able to do something where it's sort of like cerebral, but you can do something procedural and you feel like you've really done something at the same time. No, that's a that's a good sell for that. Um, okay, here's here one of uh Drug's questions for you, though, Josh. Um, he had multiple ones, but um, they might be too high level for me. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna ask this one: what is your favorite fumigant? <laughs>
2: it's funny when people ask these questions because first you're like why would anyone have a favorite fumigant but then obviously i do so, <laughs> <laughs> uh well i i'd say in general i don't like most of the fumigants i think if i had to choose one i'd probably say uh there is a fumigant called uh methyl bromide uh and it's it's one of those ones that has got a little bit of history that's kind of kind of interesting uh sometimes you'll see when people are getting like these fumigation tents over a you know over a building or something uh but again they're all all of the fumigants are very toxic i think the thing that i like about methyl bromine is it's got some history it used to be used as a uh old fire extinguisher back before mm. we realized that you shouldn't you you shouldn't <laughs> extinguish fires with things that could also kill people so <laughs> uh we don't use that anymore uh it's uh has this sort of a Sweet chloroform odor, if you will. Not that Mm. I know what that smells like, or that I would recommend going and smelling that. I love that you're a connoisseur of things that can kill you. That's (laughs) fantastic. uh, Yeah. yeah, Instead of like tossing the wine around and sipping, it's just
1: let's let's, chloroform notes.
3: Okay, two two more questions, and then we're gonna close up shop here. Okay. Um this one is from Charismatic Megafauna (laughs) at C M J O M G L O L. (laughs) That's pretty funny, actually. Um, this one is, can you talk about xylazine? I would love to hear about clinical presentation mechanisms, complications, complications, and management. You don't need to go into all that, but could you tell people what xylazine is and, uh, what it does?
2: Sure. So I'm, so if I were going to sum up, uh, uh, xylazine, so xylazine is, uh, it's a drug that's used for, um, sedation and, uh, uh, analgesia and like usually in the the animal world it's, uh, and vet- veterinarians use it a lot and i think um uh, i have obviously never never really given uh, xylazine. i'll say the the sh- long story short with xylazine is that it is a central alpha 2 agonist and it's it basically can cause you to have in humans can cause some uh central nervous system depression some bradycardia some hypotension uh, and can sometimes cause very, very, very uh, bad drowsiness, and it is one 100 percent not safe for humans. Obviously, sometimes <laughs> it is found sometimes it's found its way into um, uh, certain uh, uh, drugs. It's been uh, some sort of um, contaminant, and things like fentanyl and heroin. And uh, if you're interested in, in hearing more, reading more about that, the FDA has put out put out a a health alert about about xylazine. Uh, just to uh, healthcare professionals, I believe, if you probably if you like were to, to Google FDA health alert and xylazine, you would see it. But uh, it's just something to to think about in uh, in in these patients. Uh, if you ever see something like this, again, if someone calls me xylazine is not like, did you did you check for xylazine? It's not going to be something I'm going to ask. It's more of like Hi. something we keep in the back of our heads when we're thinking about uh, weird things.
3: Got you. I, I actually hadn't heard of it until this question. That's when the first time I looked it up. So I'm I'm kind of curious to know if this is something that people are seeing, if this is like a real
2: issue. Well, it's not like something that we can uh have I have I potentially seen it before? Possibly, but you know, there's not a, a bedside xylazine test we're doing in the emergency department. And if right. someone comes in and I'm concerned that this may have been exposure, I'll treat them appropriately. There's no super secret xylosine antidote that we give, right? And so it's just going to be supportive care. And then if they get better, I that I think the, the what we would tell them is to not not Do xylosine again. To, yeah, not to get <laughs> exposed to the thing that happened in the first place. So how much are we seeing? Well, it's hard to say because we're not testing every single gotcha. thing. Gotcha. Right. So
3: no, it's good to know about it. But yeah, uh, yeah, Temma. Yeah. I will give you $5 if you drop that at <laughs> a round at some point. Be like, have we considered xylazine? Yeah, uh, yeah. Potential
1: ingestion of xylazine? Yes. <laughs> That's oh, pretty good. I I haven't heard. Yeah.
3: Okay, last yeah. question. Last question. This is from Rashid Al That's Rashid underscore Al tafi He's a, uh, down in Corona, California. This is what he asks, interested to know more about adverse effects of psilocybin in relation to treatment of major depression. So psilocybin, mushrooms, we hear about it a lot now in terms of uh, treatment for anxiety or depression, PTSD, I've heard it, you know, like any any other drug, there is going to be some adverse effects that you might see. Is this something that you've encountered or been called about, Josh?
2: Uh, I'll be honest. I have, have not encountered this. Uh, I've encountered patients using mushrooms, but never with this in, intent. And I know this is an active area of study, but uh, I, I, I don't think I can comment too much on the, the, the use of the side effects from use in these studies where they're sort of mm-hmm. testing it out. I, again, right. I've seen patients and I've, I mean, I have treated patients who have claimed that they thought they were using psilocybin, right? I mean, like I don't, I don't go and and you know go over to their place and look at the mushroom and like your animals, like okay. Um yeah, it's- So it, it I, I, I don't have a ton of experience in that realm. I apologize.
3: What, what do you do when your friends call you and they're like, "We did mushrooms and we are just tripping balls too
2: hard"? Oh my! <laughs> you, well, <laughs> I say uh, uh, I'm here for you and, and I love you and I care about you. <laughs> Uh, and uh, speaking my very calming yet uh noxious stimuli voice that I have, and I tell people it's going to be okay. But uh, I think in general, the uh, no one really knows a lot of these things. Like when it comes to the world of of mushrooms, it's not like everyone's a mushroom expert. Every now and then, a friend from college who I haven't talked to in like ten years will text me, and it'll just be a picture of a mushroom, and it'll just be safe. <laughs> and i'm like no no (laughs) well hello hello it's nice to chat with you again so uh no i think most i haven't had a ton of my friends uh doing doing random shrooms uh thankfully they they we have have different
3: friends is what i'm hearing here Um, okay this has been great uh fantastic uh we have to uh close this down um before we do that though uh let me get your guys's plugs Tema, where can people find you?
1: Ah, uh, y'all can find me on Twitter, Tema Fudge, like the chocolate. Same on Instagram. You know, I'm just here.
3: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, I, if you're posting pictures of your trip, uh, it's worth I following. Am- so follow her on Instagram. Uh, she does post great pictures and she's awesome to follow on Twitter again. It's really great to have seen you again, Tema. Thank you so much for joining us at like three in the morning or whatever it is in, oh in Singapore. Have safe travels, please, okay?
1: I will, thank you.
3: Um, Josh, uh, where can people find you?
2: Uh, Twitter as well uh, for now. Uh, it's uh, hmm, at yeah. JTreebuck. It's just my last name. Uh, t-r-e-b-a-c-h and then uh my second plug will be if you find yourself with a poison question or whatever you can always call your local poison control center uh
3: i do recommend following josh as long while he's on twitter at least and then following him to whatever platform he goes to next um tons of great tutorials really fun he does this really fun thing where like He'll post some murder mystery thing where like a patient comes in, a baker comes in, found <laughs> down. What was it? You know, and then he'll kind of go through the case and he'll post pictures of plants and be like, should you eat this? And <laughs> the answer is always no. Um <laughs> So, but it's it's really worthwhile doing, so I, I highly recommend it. Guys, I have no reason to say this because I had nothing to do with it, but I'm exceedingly proud of both of you and what you have done so far <laughs> in, in your careers. I'm super excited to see what both of you continue to do. Um, and it's really been great having you on. Thank you both so much for coming on. Of
1: course, thank you. Uh,
3: thank you to Nadine for help with production and thank you to Lucky Dog Hot Sauce. I highly recommend checking out Lucky Dog Hot Sauce at luckydoghotsauce.com.